0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It's good to be with you. I saw a, uh, a cartoon and uh, it's like two people on a beach sort of... I, in chairs, looking out on the, the water, and, uh, and one person says to the other, um, I'm relaxed enough that I've stopped thinking about the drive here, but not so relaxed that I'm not thinking about the drive back. Mm-hmm. So, um, topic for this morning is, uh, is thinking. Um, thinking, mindlessness, mindfulness, rumination. And, um, and want to try to, um, in a sense, parse different forms of non-mindfulness. Yeah. That maybe not all forms of non-mindfulness are created equal. Yeah. So the patterns of uh of thinking they they do change uh I think kind of dramatically over the course of a practice life that um we come to contemplate the Dharma to think about the Dharma a lot uh, in a sense, more and more. Reminds us of the Dharma. And so this becomes a kind of active point of uh, reflection, of contemplation. And, uh, and there are other changes. There are, um, I think, real reductions in certain species of self related. Thinking, yeah, and it's not that all thoughts of self-reference drop out of consciousness entirely. I don't. Maybe, maybe. Not, not for me. Uh, but, um, but there are certain kind of self-referential, ruminative thought of who we are, what we're like, where we're going, what people think, what uh, the future looks like for me, who I will become, what I will acquire. That fades quite a bit. This kind of movement of, of really taking taking the self as an object and pondering it. That's a a very congealed mode of thinking. And uh, I think that fades. But not all non-mindfulness is the same. Not all thinking is the same. Not all forms of autopilot are equally destructive. And, uh, you know, we... Okay, thanks. Um, We meditators, um, we're almost... um, tend to be like a little embarrassed that we think, you know, that um, uh, the when the guided meditation kicks in, right, and we're in the middle of some wild something, you know, <laughs> or we're wondering what that, Knocking is that's fairly persistent for the wrong door. Um you know, but that moment of just like, okay, we get called back to whatever, to the breathing or something. And um and um, it's it's you know, jarring and there's a sense of just almost like a child being caught doing something wrong or something, yeah. And um and of course, thinking is is not the enemy, and the mind is just another sense gate, yeah? It's just another sense gate, like hearing or feeling. And I, I remember a teacher saying, you know, you would never um, try to plug your ears with cotton in order to get enlightened, yeah? But uh, we do that. We have those same fantasies, whatever the equivalent of plugging the ears with cotton would be for our thinking, yeah? And um, I remember during a retreat, uh, Michelle McDonald uh, said, you know, if you broadcast what everyone was thinking in the hall, You know, if you just broadcast at all hundred, right? Which she said, it would break your heart, you know? It would break your heart. We're learning about, um, about thinking and about silence and in a way, if we're ashamed of anything inside us, it short-circuits investigation, yeah? If it feels like we may discover something about ourselves, about our conditioning that could break us, we don't look, yeah? So... um uh, a researcher, uh, Kalina Kristoff, brain, brain researcher. She uh, does a lot of very interesting things and is interested in mindfulness, meditation stuff, and uh, among other things. And in one one research um, uh, approach, she had participants do this think aloud paradigm you know like 10 minutes in a room it's kind of like uh just speak out the papancha in your mind the mental proliferation just say it out loud don't censor yourself 10 minutes just go right and um and then research assistance you know, transcribed it and then coded it. You know, to sort of deciphering it into different categories and chunks. And um, and so, she, Christoph gave one. You know, just one line. Um, hopefully, I'll get the new job because I really want it. I'm tired of my old job. Um, I miss my dog. I haven't seen her in a long time. Yeah. So it's just that ten minutes. Just that. Right and uh you gotta you gotta kind of lift a glass to the research assistants there too. That's the no joke that job, yeah um but uh they gathered all of this kind of like they're trying to parse this what is happening in people's minds, yeah and so it was thirteen hundred words. Yeah, on average, that in and thirty discrete chunks of thought, you know, where there is including twenty uh, major transitions. So that that example of I'm tired of my old job, I miss my dog. That's a major transition. Yeah, twenty of those in the course of the ten minutes, and. Um, and she was looking, as I'll get back to later, about the valence, yeah, the the kind of uh, the vedna sort of like um, negative, positive, you know, positive, negative, neutral, yeah, and then the continuities and discontinuities. And so it, just seeing seeing that is like, oh, okay, 1,300 words, 30 discrete chunks of thought, 20, 20 breaks in continuity, and that is 10 minutes, and we kind of live in that. Yeah. And uh, a question of like, why has evolution uh, conserved those habits so exquisitely? Is it just to like, humiliate us as meditators, right? It feels like that sometimes, you know. Uh, but it's probably useful for staying alive, yeah? Like that that we heard the door knocking and there is some like sense of a little vigilance or question, what is that? We did not stay with our breath. You did not keep listening to me, right? All of a sudden there was something else, yeah? And, um, and so, yeah, single-pointedness is, uh, is, there's a certain kind of defenselessness about it, yeah, to just sit and to relinquish the kind of vigilance and the, the orientation and the tracking of threat and opportunity that, um, Entails some measure of trust, some measure of safety, some measure of the. This is part of why we take the precepts on retreat, yeah. To know that we have each other's backs, to know that we are formally committed to non-harming, yeah. So that some of the vigilance might be released, yeah. And this may allow us to settle into the moment in a deeper way. And so. Um, Yeah, those habits, the habits of fragmentation, of discontinuity, of narrating our life has evolutionary value, I'm sure. But um, our happiness was not at the top of evolution's to-do list. Yeah? It's like, this is why some of this path is against the stream. So sometimes it's said that, um, that uh, mindfulness is the only factor that you can't get enough of. You can sort of overdo anything else. You can overdo the effort, the energy, the compassion, the equanimity. That can put you out of balance but one of the classical views is that there is there's no such thing as too much mindfulness that can never actually put us out of balance which is an interesting thought yeah and i was reflecting on this and and feel like oh yeah i agree if if we're aspiring for awakening in every moment mindfulness is vital mindfulness is vital and when we're really practicing, we can sense even a a short burst of unconsciousness carries a certain kind of uh, hangover, yeah? There's a, like a hangover from unconsciousness. And in the context of like, some deep aspiration around enlightenment or something like this there's there's you're kind of like kindling a fire you know you, and moments of unconsciousness sort of douse the glowing embers you can actually start to feel it yeah and the the kind of uh, way that yeah just unconsciousness diffuses diffuses the energy of insight of samadhi that's when we're dedicating each moment to freedom but um if we're honest at best we're aspiring for enlightenment some of the time <laughs> right uh-huh? not all the time right let's be honest (laughs) some of the time the rest of the time I just like to be comfortable you know (laughs) right so I want to put in a plug for um, for mindlessness yeah, This is not a retreat talk, by the way. Some talks you could give on a Sunday morning or in a retreat. This one you do not give on a retreat. This is, this is different, yeah? So um, this is different. Yeah, this is kind of like, all right, how do we be nuanced about mindlessness? And, you know, uh, I, this portion of the talk is uh, sponsored by Netflix. Just in the interest of full disclosure. Uh, so, um, when the attention is engaged consistently, it requires effort and energy. Yeah, just there are times when we just develop so much momentum that it's the image Gil uses of just coast, the mindfulness is just like coasting down water with, you know, there's, there's wind at your back, there's current at your back, but a lot of times to attend, to move the attention to the breathing, for example, entails a measure of energy. It's like attentional energy. And, um, that has some fatiguing effects, Yeah. Now, part of why we practice, part of why we practice moments of mindfulness is such that we elevate the trait level of mindfulness, the dispositional level of mindfulness, the mindfulness that we're at when we're not trying to be mindful. Yeah. That, that changes over time. Right? And so it makes it such that we don't actually have to marshal all this energy. Can I be mindful? Can I remember? Can I remember? the cruising altitude of our awareness is 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 clearer. But um, that's a whole process and it I don't think it ever stops, really. Um, and in the meantime, it takes energy, yeah, to devote the attention to the breathing or to a book or to um, anything, a person to work. And there can be a kind of backlash or a certain kind of depletion or fatigue. And sometimes you see it in, in retreat. You're sort of like exerting a lot of energy and then you just hit a wall. Yeah how many people have done residential retreat uh, in here okay it's helpful so you may be familiar with those those like the energy just sags and it just gets chaotic and very difficult to focus or to kind of feel even connected to the whole path of practice yeah the energy flags and um and maybe in our lives, just we've been through something intense, yeah? Uh, and it might be uh, some significant life event for you, something in the larger culture, COVID, all of this. It might be just a day of work or a day caring for a child or a parent or something. And there's a sense of... um Ah uh, yeah the the uh, the attention has flagged in some way it like needs to go slack and we see this again after retreat sometimes people have the, maybe a maybe a really rich retreat and then get home and it's like this backlash of unconsciousness yeah where it's like, oh, you know, it's like the attention needs to go, like, fully slack. Yeah? That's how it feels, at least. And we seek something that is, like, utterly undemanding, attentionally speaking. Yeah? Like, we seek the path of least resistance. We seek the activity with... Like zero attentional caloric burn. Yeah? Right? Like running is a thousand calories an hour and rowing, or whatever, you know, like we're looking for zero. What is zero calories burned, attentionally speaking, in some moments, yeah? And it's worth examining like our own patterns around this. What, what, what are the low, low calorie attention habits? Yeah. Like how do we try to soothe around that? What are the rhythms of exertion and going slack? And, um, And maybe sometimes, sometimes, maybe we could say, like, oh, I'm just feeling lazy or something. But other times it actually feels like, no, there's something, uh, I don't know, I was almost going to say the word wholesome, maybe that's too much, but it's like there's something needed to restore the attentional balance where there's a sense of needing to go slack attentionally, to burn zero attention calories, yeah? And uh, and maybe sleep is part of this and zoning out in different ways for sure is part of that thirst that we have. And our days are really punctuated by this rhythm of, like, giving attention and conserving it. Of giving it and rebuilding it. And um, I almost thought of, like, again, this parallel of exercise of, like, the the interval training that people do. They'll run really fast for a little bit and then walk slowly and run really fast. And it's worth investigating, like, how do we, how does our attention economy function inside? And uh, some of our work is, is examining, like, what are, what the intervals should be, yeah? And to be careful, also, what we're consuming on our attentional breaks, because um, we're pretty porous, kind of defenseless in that time, and things. You know, Thich Nhat Han's vision of the the precept around non uh, you know not taking intoxicants includes like entertainment or things because it, it sort of like gets in deeply, um, and we want to be sensitive to when we've had our fill when the attention has gone slack and there's some kind of wholesome restoration process happening, but then we sort of keep going. There's some kind of momentum of the unconsciousness and we keep going even when we've actually like really had our fill, even when the attention has been kind of replenished. We can keep going in this kind of Zero attentional caloric burn mode. And that is, um, you can start to feel that, that feels different. That feels different than the restoration mode. Is, is it making sense? Yeah. So, so summing up, uh, where we are so far, um, you don't need to, um, be engaging the attention all the time, but be careful, be careful in the sort of doses of mindlessness, what's consumed, the intervals between engaging and releasing attention. So this has been a kind of like, oh yeah, I'm trying to maybe dignify certain forms of non-mindfulness, yeah? Yeah other species of non-mindfulness are more corrosive, yeah? More problematic, where we're, we're really kind of actively marinating in the defilements, yeah? It's just like the forces of greed, hate, and delusion were like actively marinating in them. Now, maybe the traditional view would say any mindlessness is marinating in the defilements. I, I don't know, but I, I would want to just illuminate a distinction that feels real to me. Um, that, um, that there are other species of being lost that are more problematic than that kind of attention just going slack. And so, the wellspring of of suffering, greed, hate, and delusion, greed, aversion, delusion, um, we're very familiar with what greed looks like, with what aversion or hate looks like. Delusion is more slippery, you know. And sometimes delusion itself is defined as just being lost in thought. Being lost in thought. When mindfulness collapses, we truly are on a train ride and we never get to decide where we're going. Our habits, good and bad, make that call. They're the conductor. Yeah. And when, when, um, the, the kind of, we notice this, the movement from like, okay, we were fo- attending to the breathing. The movement from the breathing to being identified with thought is itself thoroughly encased in unconsciousness. Yeah. It's not like, okay, now maybe I'll get lost in some thoughts of dragons. Or whatever, right? It's just like, no, we, there's this collapse and this move into, off the, the breathing and into some thought realm. And then we live in that bubble and we are kind of severed from the Dharma. Yeah? Like there, there is a very precipitous collapse that happens in that. And the nature of mindlessness is that it is, um, it's is—it's a kind of perfect identification with the content of thought. Perfect identification with the content of thought. It's this utter collapse of knowing. This is a philosopher, uh, Metzinger. Uh, The beginning of every mind-wandering episode is marked exactly by the collapse of our epistemic agent model. I'll say, unpack this. Metzinger always talks like this. So... uh, the the beginning of every mind wandering episode is marked by the collapse of our epistemic agent model, a conscious representation of now possessing the ability for epistemic self-control, for knowing. Yeah. And the end of every episode of mind wandering is marked by the re-emergence of a new epistemic agent model, the meta-aware self, the self that is then aware, the meditator that then can know uh, lost in thought now here. I think it could be fruitful to analyze mind-wandering as a loss of mental autonomy goes on to say. When we're not identified with thought, We have a model of ourselves like an implicit model uh, of ourselves where we can direct our attention, we can direct our thinking, we can direct the attention to the breathing or to the body more broadly or to feeling tone or to the mind, right? We can do this. We have a sense of a model of um uh, where we can exercise attentional control, yeah And when we get lost, the epistemic and that, this is the w- word around the the knowing, the capacity for knowing. Um, that epistemic agent, something capable of knowing, collapses. Very precipitously, yeah, in a sense, no one's been there to notice that. there's just we we just collapse, yeah, that model collapses, and we become perfectly identified with the thought, and it's literally like like we become the protagonist of the thought world and we forget it's just a character yeah and so we do we truly lose sense of of mental autonomy and wherever that train is going that's where we're headed yeah maybe headed to heaven or hell we are not conducting, yeah? In those moments, um, we are... uh, the Dharma feels kind of remote, yeah? The default assumptions of that mode of living, of being identified with thought is not full of Dhamma, yeah? And the moment of coming back is the kind of, the re-emergence of Metta, M-E-T-A, awareness, mind, some kind of mindfulness. It's the re-emergence, that is a moment of mindfulness, as every teacher says, that's a moment of mindfulness. And once again, we, we're aware of phenomena as phenomena. Yeah, we're aware of the body as phenomena, the breath as phenomena. Everything is phenomena, again. But that was really deeply forgotten in that collapse of the knowing, the collapse of the epistemic agent. One species of this collapse that um, deserves note is is rumination. Yeah. So, and this brings us back to uh, Kalina Kristoff. Yeah, the the rumination, the brooding, this kind of obsessional very abstract, very deeply lost mode of thinking um, is uh, is not so good for us. You know? So Christoph writes, instead of freely moving from one topic to another, individuals prone to remuneration exhibited longer negative thoughts and negative content in ruminative individuals was linked to a narrowing in conceptual scope yeah over time suggested by higher levels of semantic similarity so higher like the in the ruminative modes there's less it's this narrowing yeah like we can feel it when we get in those modes it literally feels claustrophobic yeah the mind feels claustrophobic. It feels narrow. We're perseverating about something. We're chewing on something. We're like, and there's more similarity, semantic similarity, encoding the words. There's more similarity. Yeah? This is a very congealed sense of self. Yeah? very congealed and in the dream of rumination uh, we've really almost completely forgotten the three characteristics yeah dukkha anicca anatta that um, suffering unreliability not self um in our ruminations, in that state of deep loss, we fantasize about a durable pleasure that might structure our lives. We fervently hope to tie up all the loose ends of being human and hold the world still. We try to game out uncertainty and find the path through the labyrinth of a Nietzsche of uncertainty, unreliability. And we fantasize about taking a refuge in an identity of finally finding our home in some sense of this is me, this is self. All of that are different kinds of dead ends but we're so earnest in our rumination in our loss and really the we're, we're trying i think often with rumination we're trying to solve an affective emotional problem with thoughts yeah we trust thinking, we sort of like, it's the kind of main tool in our problem-solving arsenal, and we over-trust it, yeah? The word itself means chewing, yeah? And um, to ruminate, and it's like we're trying to to digest our problem with our thought, yeah? and we're just kind of like going to chew until we feel better but usually wind up feeling worse and that is because that mode of thinking maybe thoughts generally like they do not function well as uh, digestive enzymes yeah they just don't maybe certain kinds of, you know, speech with one another, that can function that way. But when we're in deep in our own heads, often in this ruminative mode, things are not being digested. It's quicksand. And to enter that realm is to lose. And so the invitation... Is to go to the body, to go to the engine of feeling. I was alluding to this in the in the sit. Uh, To go to that's like thinking is only it's it's clinging necessitates thinking. Yeah, I I don't know that all thinking is a function of clinging, but a lot is. And when we find ourselves clinging, we thinking becomes vital. Yeah, we, we just feel compelled to think, to think our way to the object of our clinging. And so instead of instead of taking that approach, we we go to the body, to the engine, the engine, of feeling and the thoughts that come off like like s- exhaust on, on off an engine. We we go to the body. Okay, we're willing to feel badly. Yeah, equanimity with unpleasantness doesn't feel good. Yeah, there is there is a subtle taste of relief in it. But at least initially, it does not feel good. But we cannot try to solve the affective, you know, challenges with the thought itself. Yeah. So we go to the body, and we're we practice patience and equanimity and begin to release some of the energy of clinging. It begins to take some of the thorns of our thinking, the thorns of rumination out. And uh, this reconnects us to the Dharma, to what we know, to our own wisdom, to our goodness, to the path, to the Buddha. So I offer this for consideration. Just sit for a moment together. So thank you. Uh, that's uh I appreciate the opportunity to uh to be with you this morning and um please uh pick up what is uh, useful and leave whatever is uh all the rest leave that behind. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I'll uh I'll hang around for a bit if uh you want to chat about anything. So uh thank you. Thank you all.